I think for me, a lot of it comes back to the strength-based approach that we're taking with youth. That we're not defining them by what has happened to them or what experiences they have gone through. We try not to use adjectives in front of, you know, they're this kind of youth or that kind of youth. They may have experienced this or been part of this. So I think that opportunity youth, I appreciate the definition, but really the word I think is the most important thing because it shifts it from this kind of approach that says this is someone I have to help to this is someone that has been through some things and we're gonna walk alongside them and see where we can go together and help them develop their skills that they were kind of denied in their upbringing until, until we've gotten to them. You know, there's pieces missing from a really good, stable life. And so <laughs> we're there to, to give them that opportunity and, and also to have them see the opportunity in themselves. I think that's one of the really critical things that we're doing with young people is we're creating those trusting relationships and that's helping them see what's possible, both mm -hmm. for themselves and for the world and their relationships. Welcome to the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holberg, your host, CEO and president of Search Institute where our own research over the past 60 years has found relationships to be the roots that all young people need to grow and thrive. If you are going to be introduced to a group of people and the person introducing you only talked about your struggles, your pains, your biggest failures, or the challenges that you face, you wouldn't feel like that's a good representation of who you are. Well, youth that grow up in foster care and begin to come close to aging out, or those that face homelessness, are often described in these deficit ways. Today's guests, Dr. Peter Samuelson and Karen Kingsley from Lutheran Social Services, are going to talk about a program that moves beyond seeing these young people from a deficit lens to recognizing their strengths and understanding what happens when you build interventions focused on generosity, hope, and gratitude with a group of opportunity youth that have all the potential in the world. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode today. Thank you so much for listening to another session. And thank you, Peter, for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to be with you, Ben. I think it's very helpful to hear a little bit of your story of what brought you kind of to this moment, to this interest in what you're doing at Lutheran Social Services, as, as well as just in the area of working with Opportunity Youth. Karen, let's start with you and your journey to coming to this place. And what are some of the ways that you got here? Well, it's an interesting journey, as most people's are, but I started at Lutheran Social Service three years ago as the Senior Director of Youth and Family Services after about 20 years in Minnesota nonprofit organizations working on a range of issues affecting children and families. 
and youth. I actually have a background in public policy work, so I did a lot of work at the legislature around advancing preschool education and also around after-school programs for youth and housing programs. So really my career has been looking at how do we think about things systemically and how do we do that work in a systemic way and coming to LSS, you know, we serve more than 4,000 youth every year. So it's a system in and of itself. And so very excited to be able to do some on the ground work with the youth that we serve. Could you pinpoint some times in your life, even growing up, even before you got into the profession, that really begin to foster this spark or this curiosity towards wanting to, to help youth? Well, you know, I think my dad was someone who was always very civically involved. He was, you know, in neighborhood groups and he read like four newspapers every day. And so he was very engaged in the world. And he asked me about what do I think about the world? And so I've always been interested in thinking about what's the state of the world and how can we make it better? And young people, of course, are people who have so much to give. They have so much wisdom They have been through so much, the young people that we work with. And I think there's such potential for them to really transform their lives from a place of trauma to a place of strength and really amazing achievement. And the fact that they've been through what they've been through, I think, really makes it all the more sweet when they succeed. And I just, you know, I learn so much from them. You know, they're so wise. I think, oh my gosh, how did you figure that out? You're (laughs) 17, you're 18. And I didn't figure that out until I was, I don't know, yesterday. It's just very inspiring. And so it gives back a lot to me. And I feel like I can contribute to helping them and changing the systems also that can help them succeed. So it's a good mutual benefit. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that story. How about you, Peter? Talk a little bit about your journey of getting to this moment of working at LSS and your passion for working with Opportunity Youth. Well, I guess I have to go back to coming out of college and and going to seminary first in my career and becoming a, a Lutheran pastor, serving the church in a bunch of different settings, and finally ending up in Atlanta in a primarily African-American congregation and recognizing some systemic things that impacted that my parishioners' lives and the youth in that parish really helped me to understand the deep need for systemic change and for helping these youth to navigate all the things they face. But while I was there in Atlanta, I enrolled in a PhD program in educational psychology and decided that I wanted to study how youth develop morals and faith. This kind of grew out of an experience I had writing a Sunday school curriculum. You know, as a pastor, you're concerned about how will the faith live on? Will the next generation have the faith that we have to to continue it? So I shifted, though, to a, a more secular moral point of view, how do, how do youth develop their own sense of morality, and uh, did a character education study in my PhD work, and then in, in various ways, including a postdoc with John Templeton Foundation, and then getting a job at the Thrive Foundation for Youth in Menlo Park, California, I had an opportunity to get engaged with some youth service providers who were doing this work, and understanding that they needed support and structure to reach the youth in their brilliant ways that they were doing that. And I I knew of LSS and their work just from growing up in Minnesota and being a Lutheran pastor, 
And so when the opportunity came for me to join LSS, I, I jumped at it and I came at it more from a program evaluation with my program evaluation expertise and also worked on some grant writing and then eventually focused mostly on program evaluation. But again, the commitment that LSS has and the, and the people in the youth and family programming is just astonishing. And it's really inspiring too. to, I'm about three steps removed from the practice on the ground, but to speak to those practitioners and then to meet the youth too, whom they're engaging with is just inspiring. They're really committed to the work and they're very wise as well, those practitioners. So I think it's about supporting the practitioners and giving them the best tools they can possibly have. That finally is what I decided I could do and contribute to this endeavor. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. As as you both know, I think a big reason why the John Templeton Foundation gave money to the different grantees was really to help researchers and practitioners team up for meaningful relationships, a, a true collaborative relationship. And if a practitioner or a teacher is out there listening to this, Karen, how would you describe the way that research and science has been both helpful or what are some of the challenges maybe that you've faced as you've had to think about bridging that gap, some may call it, between research and practice? We've had some really deep conversations about about research. And what I think is it really helps us as practitioners to know that what we're doing is actually making the kind of impact we want to be making. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, we're in the flow of doing the work with young people every day and we're dealing with the crises that come up because of whatever is happening at that moment. So we don't always have the time to reflect and to think about what are the implications of this and and what are the ways. So having a research partner that has that kind of perspective, that's looking at it from 10,000 feet, that's saying, here's what I see and here's the patterns and here's the, the results is really helpful. And to help us think about, are we doing something that's a best practice? Mm-hmm. And that's been really helpful. I will say language is a challenge between, like, when I hear PI, I think Magnum, PI, <laughs> right? I, right? I don't think whatever it is, principal investigator, or, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, your, I, I don't know your language. And we had a long conversation, Peter and I, about the word research, because we're recruiting young people to take part in this curriculum, and we're asking them to be part of a research project. And I said, do we have to use the word research because they don't they don't want to be researched, right. right? And that's not what we're asking. We're actually asking them to evaluate and give us feedback on this curriculum and tell us whether it's worth replicating. And so we really we tweaked the language so that it really addressed what I think young people need and want to hear. And so that's been good to have that dialogue about, you know, those different ways of seeing the world. Yeah. Yeah. From just just the small kind of switch of the the youth from being researched to really being researchers, right? Like where they're, they're actually uh, contributing to the design and to the evaluation and how, how important that is to do and to have that connection. Peter, how about how about you? Is there anything you would you would want to add to that as far as some of the ways that the kind of scholar practitioner divide and and how you both have been able to navigate that? Yeah, I think it's as a researcher, 
it's really exciting to see some of the theory come into practice naturally. I mean, I I don't have to talk about them, about the importance of an adult role model or a mentor. That's just happening. You know, and all the best PYD, positive youth development practices, are just sort of natural to these, these practitioners, many of whom came through some kind of experience with a mentor or with an organization that helped them out. So they're really kind of giving back at that point. So that's kind of exciting. I find myself just reinforcing, you are naturally doing what the best practices, what the research says, Mm -hmm. makes an impact. So that's fun. And then I do point out if I find a special tool or a special way that can help them out, you know, I'm happy that I can bring that to them. But most of the time, I'm not telling them something they don't already know as a researcher. And I do think that both the opportunity and the challenge is with the day-to-day of the person on the ground whom you really need to collaborate with. They are kind of so crucial to the research study. They're often collecting the data. They're often recruiting the youth. So we've been really, really mindful of how can we make this in the easiest way possible for them. And Dr. Husong at University of North Carolina has set up a website, she and her researchers, to just make it as smooth as possible. But there are still real challenges there. I think keeping in mind the day-to-day challenges that those caseworkers and youth workers have is super important. And then I, I have to say also, one of the fee- uh, pushbacks we got from so mm-hmm. the Institutional Review Board IRB has its rules for protecting you know human subject research, and that's I honor that and admire that and all that. But sometimes they don't necessarily know what's on the ground either, and some of the demands are hard to navigate. So we've we've found I think that's been a lot behind the scenes at the University of North Carolina, but there have been challenges there that I think happen in any case. Yeah, that's a interesting when you when both of you mentioned kind of getting on the same page with language. And I want to talk about that even more as we turn to the project you took on, because you proposed this project, Developing Gratitude, Generosity and Hope in Opportunity Youth. And you did this before, of course, before the pandemic had hit, before we'd gone through this really uh, difficult year. I want to first talk a little bit about this term opportunity youth and why the language of using opportunity youth matter and what is the definition of opportunity youth for both of you. And then let's talk about some of the the current challenges that might not have been present when you put this proposal in and then we'll get into the details of the project. So talk to me about this shift to understanding what opportunity youth is. I will start. I'd like Karen to contribute her particular definition, but there is, I can't remember the researcher's name, but it was originally in a government report that identified this this label, opportunity youth, as youth disconnected from a system. So they've dropped out of college, they're unemployed, they may be in foster care or, or some, they're disconnected from a support system or from the societal supports that normal youth have. And what I've discovered in 
beyond that original definition as as researchers have taken it on is it doesn't have to describe them at their current state so or they don't have to have dropped out of high school and ha- and not be employed which is kind of the classic definition but that they can have had one of those experiences in the past or currently have one of them going on but the shift in mindset is these kids are underutilized. Our economy needs them, right? Our society needs them. They they have, in some ways, the greatest opportunity for contribution because they would go from zero to something. And that's that mindset shift in describing them is what attracted me to the term is it's sort of strengths-based. I think for me, you know, a lot of it, for me, comes back to the strength-based approach that we're taking with youth, that we're not defining them by what has happened to them or, you know, what experiences they have gone through. We try not to use adjectives in front of, you know, they're this kind of youth or that kind of youth. They may have experienced this or been part of this. So I think that opportunity youth I appreciate the definition, but really the word, I think, is is the most important thing because it shifts it from this kind of approach that says, this is someone I have to help, to this is someone that has been through some things, and we're going to walk alongside them and see where we can go together and help them develop their their skills that they were kind of denied in their upbringing until until we've gotten to them. You know, there's pieces missing from a really good, stable life. And so mm-hmm. we're there to, to give them that opportunity and, and also to have them see the opportunity in themselves. I think that's one of the really critical things that we're doing with young people is we're creating those trusting relationships and that's helping them see what's possible, both mm-hmm. for themselves and for the world and their relationships. So I think it's a good reframing of what I think in the past was a more problematic framing of, of how we have to help youth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you, you mentioned the context of people's stories, too, of like, because often I think when we think about behavior, we can easily label it something without the context. But often when we see the context of someone's life and their behavior, it begins to create this opportunity for empathy of saying, oh, there's a story here. Obviously, the youth that you all worked with in this study, but also who you work with as well, has stories. And these stories are related some to the risks and the challenges and the adversities they face. I was just reading as I was getting ready for this conversation that I think you you cite that there's 6,000 unoccupied, unaccompanied youth that are experiencing homelessness and that 35% are age 17 and younger. That is pretty astounding. That's just in in Minnesota. And, and, And of course, we're seeing numbers rise all over the place. Right. Talk a little bit about some of those real risks and the stories, the stories of challenge and, and, and what happens for young people when they don't have a stable housing situation. I'll say sometimes people have asked us like, well, why is that child not at home? You know, why is that 16 year old out on the street? And actually that 16 year old being out on the street sometimes is a very pro survival decision that they are coming from a situation in their family where perhaps there's mental illness, perhaps there's domestic violence could be poverty, could be any number of stressors in that family that really make life there very difficult. And in fact, leaving is a thing that 
promotes safety. You, mm. It's kind of ironic, right? But some people's situations are like that. And then we have we have a disproportionate representation from youth of color across the board. And that says something about systemic racism and systemic right. poverty and all of those contributing factors that really make life more difficult for youth of color. Same with LGBTQI youth, that some families are not accepting of them, and they're either thrown out or or leave because of that stress. So we work with a lot of youth who've been involved in the foster care system, and there's many, many strengths of the foster care system, and there's many amazing foster care families. And there's also been youth who've moved from family to family to family, and some of those have been good, and some of those have been not good. And some have been good, but then when you turn 18, you're done. And so <laughs> we really work a lot with those youth to see if we can prevent future homelessness. I mean, we know that everybody needs somebody. And we want to be there for young people who don't necessarily have that built-in infrastructure in their life. And so, you know, we're there with them and we help them really notice all of the strengths that they've gained, that it's amazing what they've been able to mm. do and, and what they've been able to figure out kind of on their own and how much they teach us about what you can achieve. And, and we just have to keep reminding them that they're good mm. and that they're loved and that we care about them and that we have confidence in them. And that goes a long way towards helping them really achieve the successes that they want. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, when you think about the teacher, the practitioner who are out there, I think there's probably two avenues. One might be the teacher or practitioner who really just would need to understand what are some of the signs of, of youth that are homeless? What are some, some things to look for if you start to suspect that there is not a stable housing situation and where can they turn to? And then you might also have people who work with Opportunity Youth and they're on the ground every day and they're, they're, they're seeing the pain and the difficulty and challenge. And what are some things that you do as an organization or some of the things that you know being in the field a long, uh, a long time now to be able to keep that fresh perspective of hope and be able to see youth as as not problems to be solved, but as really assets to or, or even sparks to be fanned and flamed to, to really make an impact in the world. I think a lot of it really is sharing with other practitioners about your experience, both the good and the hard, because if anyone who's ever been in a relationship with any other human, you know that it is easy sometimes and difficult sometimes. And same with the the youth that we work with and the staff who are working with them. And yeah, one day you might be like, I cannot see the strengths in this young person. But then you talk to your colleagues and you talk it through and you hear the stories and you get support from each other around that. I think that's really, really important. The other is to tell those success stories. We just recently did an event where we had a video of a number of young people who told their stories. Hmm. And they were so wise and so just so beautiful. And they also were talking about how the relationships really mattered, the relationships with these practitioners. And I think practitioners need to hear that and see that because, you know, the day before they might have been yelled at by that young person. Mm -hmm. But that's because 
you know, they're figuring out how to be in relationship and how to be accountable to each other. And they hadn't had that. And so now they're testing it out and they're testing boundaries. And all of that is very important. We've been also doing training around adolescent brain development. So, Mm -hmm. you know, by the way, a 24-year-old, in terms of their brain, they're still an adolescent. So we think 18 and you're not an adolescent. So really being reminded about the real true um, Mm -hmm. process that's going on with young people that, yes, they are figuring out boundaries and, yes, they are risk takers. And that's all part of adolescent brain development. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And I think sometimes we, anybody who's worked in the field uh, long enough will have those those stories of heartbreak and challenge and difficulty and to be able to center that in relationship with other people and to talk about that. I'll just tell a personal story of a kid that I worked with that was really having a hard time in school and was was struggling to to get his homework done. He was incredibly resilient. So he would find ways to be able to shower and get ready for school and come to school as if nothing was happening. And as we dug into the story more, it came to find out he was basically kind of couch surfing and going to different people's houses and finding places to stay that had a real impact on him. And so some of the teachers at the time were really more disciplinarians around his behavior without understanding the context. So I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about what to look for when we talk about youth that, that don't have these kind of stability. What are some of the, the behavioral or emotional or other things that, that we can spot and see when we're working with youth? Well, I definitely think conflict is, is a thing that you might experience with that young person as you're building a relationship with them around boundaries, around whether you can really be relied upon or Mm -hmm. not. And so in the example that you've talked about, a young person who is oppositional, I think, is an indication of something, right? Something's Mm -hmm. going on behind that. And, you know, our approach is always to have a trauma-informed approach. So Mm -hmm. to establish trauma-informed care And the basic question has been not why are you the way you are, but what happened to you? And Mm -hmm. I think practitioners just have to have that mindset. Whether they actually find out what happened or not doesn't really matter. But having that mindset of thinking, oh, hmm, what happened to this person that they are doing XYZ behavior? That, I think, really changes the dynamic. I also think practitioners and all human beings really need to work on their own emotional intelligence to think about, well, oh, I'm I'm reactive when something like that happens and and I'm not always thinking because you're going to have to meditate or do yoga or I don't know, walk in the woods. You're going to have to find ways to center yourself because the young people aren't centered. One of my staff tells a story about a young person who had really been oppositional to her and used a lot of foul language with her. And she recently ran into them again after they had been out of the program. And they were like, oh my gosh, Jen, I miss you. You're so great. I really love you. You know, And that's the difference it made because she stuck with him and moved through you know, those kinds of incidents. And relationships, relationships, relationships is, is always at the core of the work that we do. And they're real relationships. They matter. 
Yeah, there's a, a wonderful person I know who's a practitioner, a therapist, but also a, a faculty member named Terry Hargrave, who talks about these really these two innate needs that that all kids deserve, and that is love and trustworthiness. And love love answers the question, am I worthy? And trustworthiness answers the question, am I safe? And it strikes me that when I think about these these opportunity youth, that those violations of both love and trustworthiness happen so often that really the relational wounds that were created require relational anecdotes and healing and thinking about how do I provide that idea that you are worthy as a human being, you have dignity, I know you, you you're seen, and then you're safe. It's it's psychologically safe, and 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 that's that persistence that we can show as a practitioner. So I love that story. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's, that's perfect. I found that too in, in a study I did with the Thrive Foundation when we studied exemplary youth service providers that the caseworkers and youth workers exactly did that, hung in there, and the kids really noticed Another thing you said, Ben, that was, I think, illustrative is with that homeless youth you experienced, they are good at hiding what's going on. Mm. And so I think you have to wait before you're engaged with them and really understand their situation, be trustworthy. And you said, we came to find out there was, well, somehow you came to find out because you were trustworthy. And Mm -hmm. in LSS, we have workers that go out to the streets and just hand out toothbrushes and maybe bus tokens and stuff. And it takes repeated, repeated encounters with these youth to draw them into services. You know, they're very, they've learned that uh, people aren't trustworthy. So just Mm. demonstrating trustworthiness very early in the relationship, I think is a way to discover what their backstory is and that the context is. One of our staff, Duncan, He says, you know, I can sit down and have a conversation with a young person about, well, what's going on and what's happening with you? And it it can be, you know, successful. But he's like, what I really do is I go play basketball with them. (laughs) And I'm just playing basketball, you know. And and then then they start talking. Yeah. And you got to think of ways of doing this that's not so formal and not so ruled by questionnaires and intake forms and all of that and really have room for those relationships to build. Yeah, being intentional with youth in even the small ways can make big differences. And I think about this, I I liked what you said, and I've heard it said before, of of moving from this place of what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And there's a, there is a real shift there that allows for some empathy to understand people's story. But when we think about moving into the character space now, we think about the intervention around gratitude, generosity, and hope. We're actually moving a step further. It's not just a matter of what happened to you now, it's almost as what you can contribute to, to the world. And so I would love now to, to start with you, Peter, as, as you proposed, as you were thinking about studying character within an, a group that often people would not associate or have conversation about character development for a, a group of youth who often may not have their general needs met or 
Can you talk a little bit about that, just, well, the project in general and the conceptualization of that? And then, and then I'm excited to dig into the findings of even how Opportunity Youth define these words. Sure. So I began to see these virtues, especially these three, but, but many virtues, as tools for good living. They're not just that. I th- you know, we embody them so they become a part of us. They're not just technical tricks or anything, but they, they help us organize our life and behavior and our thoughts about ourselves in ways that are virtuous in that they help us live a good life. And as thinking about opportunity youth and then this sort of positive youth development approach, this strength-based approach of helping youth understand their gifts or giftedness, you know, that they they come to the world, even if their gift is simply resilience, which they have in spades, that's a gift. But to just help them take a moment and make an inventory of those things. And then in some ways, think about how they came about and be grateful for them. Say, say thank you. Or so this idea that gratitude would help them stop and think about their giftedness, who they are, what gifts they have, mm-hmm. what they, strengths they have and what they might have to share. And then giving them in the next step is sort of a three-step process of giving them an opportunity to be generous with those gifts, look around them and share those gifts with their immediate context or larger society, however they define giving of those gifts, uh, something unique they can do given who they are. So that's mm. sort of the that's why generosity would follow the gratitude. And then hope comes about by being an agent of your own destiny, of, of having made a difference in, in some way to someone else or to to some system or whatever institution. So it's really uh, about being generous and then doing something or being uh, grateful with your gifts and then doing something with your gifts that brings about that hope, that sense of agency. There are other things about hope that are deeper than that that we also ask the youth to think about in this in this curriculum. But that it's more about that first giving act that maybe help them be agentic. And so... That's the basic concept that I thought through. And then when they have these these virtues, these skills, these tools that they can keep practicing, I think then you get into a, what I might call a virtuous cycle. I mean, hope mm-hmm. kind of gets about gratitude, which leads to generosity. Generosity gives you hope, which can also make you grateful. So this kind of virtuous circle we I hadn't thought of, but was discovered kind of in our discussions with youth and staff. Yeah. And as you engage in those conversations with the youth and focus group and really invited them to this position where where we often have a hard time sharing power with with young people, mm-hmm. but you but actually invite them to the to the table as contributors to the evaluation. What was some of the ways they described those terms? and their day-to-day lives or in, and how they talked about them? It was interesting on a, on a couple of levels. I think they thought about gifts pretty concretely originally, like having things, having an apartment, having, you know, but then also, so gratitude was more often about having received something tangible in that way. I think we hope that was in the focus group when we just said, "What what is gratitude? You know, give give us your definition. Being thankful for having been given something mm-hmm. would would be that." But then they 
they thought about that, I think, quite broadly in the sense of they especially felt that as youth having been provided a relationship or a service through a social service agency, because these all these youth are engaged with LSS, I think their immediate context really shaped this idea that they had been given something, they had been given help. And then a very interesting finding, I think, out of that was their generosity was motivated by a sense of uh, paying it forward or you know, paying mm. it back. So that in that way, that gratitude really motivated their generosity. And that was in their experience. Also, how, again, this is, I think, typical for adolescents is their sort of circle of influence is their friends, mostly. And so gratitude and generosity really was within that, those relationships. So they were often generous to their friends or their friends were generous to them and they were grateful for it. And they were also grateful for the generosity of the of the caseworkers and what they've been given. And and just the sort of dark side of that was sometimes they could be too generous or generous to a fault, I guess we would say, where mm-hmm. and, I, and one story I've heard from the workers is a youth will get an apartment and of course the lease says one person is only allowed to live there. Well, now that they have an apartment and they have two friends out on the streets, they invite the friends in to surf the couch or whatever. The landlord discovers it and suddenly they've broken their lease and they're out. So mm-hmm. they put themselves at risk because of their generosity. And they they really are generous with each other. And that's sort of the culture of youth experiencing homelessness is that's how they get get along is and get by. So one of the things I think we wanted to teach in the curriculum was that what we you might call appropriate generosity. How do you sort of protect, keep yourself safe and be generous at the same time? Yeah. And I would say too, they're continuing to learn to trust. And I remember somebody talked about fake generosity, Mm -hmm. you know, and well, some people, you know, they look like they're generous, Mm -hmm. but they're not. And so they've, you know, they're still trying to navigate, Mm -hmm. you know, what does that look like? And can I trust? I think they've come to a point where they've, at least the young people that we've been talking to, trust our organization and our staff and have learned a lot from those relationships, but they're still navigating. They're still Mm. navigating all of those. And so am I. I'm still navigating (laughs) it. So it's not like an end. It doesn't have an end in terms of your learning of gratitude, generosity, and hope. And, you know, some days you're you're not feeling all of those things, but then the next day someone is generous towards you and it perks up your hope. And uh, so they're learning like we are. Yeah. And I was curious, Karen, what was kind of your response when when you taught when Peter made up I don't know who how it came about when but when you started thinking about character virtues for the population you served what was some of your first thoughts of that and then how do you see these three things being important for especially opportunity youth well I think it's an interesting thing again about language I think sometimes character has been used as a as a weapon mm-hmm. you know like you're not good or you're not right. well behaved or and character virtues you're not virtuous you know so again it's about the language that we use and i think if i said to young people i'm going to teach you character mm-hmm. i don't know that that's really they'd be like well who are you and why why are you teaching me that 
Right. And you think about all of the generational and racial differences between me and a young person, and, and it gets really complicated. But when you start to talk about gratitude and generosity and hope, they're like, oh, yeah, I, I know what that is. I, I get that, and I want that, and I am grateful and all that kind of stuff. So I think you don't want anything with young people who've experienced a lot of trauma to come mm -hmm. across in any kind of punitive way. They've had enough punishment to last a few lifetimes. Mm -hmm. They've had an, enough uh, hard things happen. They really need some gentleness and some, as you said it before, you know, they need some love and they need some trustworthiness. So, and then you'll see, you know, the character virtues, I think, will bloom from that. But you can't go in with that kind of language, I think. Mm -hmm. um, that, yep. that really, especially, I think, when you start to take in race as a key factor in what's going on. And the last year, of course, has been this reckoning, not just in Minneapolis and not just in Minnesota, but in the U.S. and, and across the world. And good. We needed a reckoning. And, you know, today is actually the anniversary of George Floyd's death. And so it's a pretty momentous moment, I think, mm -hmm. about all of that. And so I think we have to continue to think about anything that we're doing in, in the direction of young people. How is that coming across? And is that is that part of a white way of being and doing? And what would be a different way of being and doing? And how do we really respect that? And we got to keep looking at that. You know, it's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. So we don't always see it. But they're going to challenge us on that. I think that is one side benefit of all of this work in the last year is that people of color, youth of color are going to not settle for the ways yeah. in which we've done things, which, again, I think is good. We need more systemic solutions. So I think there's a lot of good things about that. And I think we can continue to think about language mm -hmm. and how language can be welcoming and inclusive and how it can feel exclusive. Sure. And so how do we keep working on that? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I was wondering, even in the, the youth that you've worked with, Peter, and, and some of the, the, the findings that you have, were differences emerging for youth as they talked about these things? And what were some of the, what were some of the findings that might have been surprising or what were some of the findings that stuck out to you? Yeah, I think it, it really had to do with this sense of paying it forward. I, I didn't expect that to be as strong as it was. And in some ways, the finding, it's maybe unremarkable, but in some ways, their ideas of generosity and gratitude are much the same as uh, youth, privileged youth, if you will, or youth who have things. It, it may just be more related to their world, you know. And one other finding, I think, I don't know if it's even a surprise, but it's certainly there, is even a gratitude for the adversity that they went through, understanding mm -hmm. that it made them stronger. It proved to them that they were resilient. And and many spoke of that as a real thing, that they, as they thought about it, that they could, you know, not be grateful it happened to them, but see that some good came out of it that they can now can use and build on. So on the one hand, their ideas of gratitude and generosity and hope are very similar to other privileged youth. But on the other, they're very contextually bound by the mm. kinds of things they're great for. 
grateful for. And I think also maybe the people they choose to help being, they really are now concerned about their peers who aren't getting the help they have and want to be generous to them and have a very specific idea of what it means to be generous. And it's about helping, you know, paying it forward or helping that person who is in need now. So I guess mm-hmm. those were the, the kinds of findings that stood out to me in the, in the focus groups. We have yet to test yeah. the curriculum because of COVID. We wanted to do it in person. So now mm-hmm. that that's a possibility, we're about to, to do the more rigorous kind of testing on that. That'll be really exciting to hear how that goes. Mm -hmm. So, well, I am so grateful for this project and just all of the work you both have done. I'm excited to hear the findings and the results of this. And and people, of course, can can find this incredible work through uh, Lutheran Social Service. Hopefully there'll be more information about it. I'm wondering, Karen, if you could if you could kind of take us out today and Maybe just share one thing that's kind of in your heart or on your heart for for people who are out there, whether you want to speak directly to youth workers or teachers or share a bit of wisdom. But I wonder if you could kind of take us out today from what you've learned and what you've experienced in your role. Well, sure. Well, first off, I think uh, people who work with young people are amazing. They're really dedicated and have a lot of stamina. And also, I think, just bring a lot of love to their work. So the opportunity to actually be in relationship with people is a wonderful thing about getting to do youth work and really being able to see the difference that you make. One of the young people the other day that we've worked with, she just said, you know, no one told me that I was okay or that I was worthy. And then I came here and people at LSS were welcoming and they brought me in and I always feel safe here. And And I think it's that kind of thing. It's the everyday kind of thing of every day that you're greeting a young person and every day that you're sitting with them and giving them some clothing or some food or a shower. It's that kindness that really mm. goes a really long way. And seeing them as a human being with a set of challenging experiences that they've been through and many, many, many gifts and perspectives on the world and on life that you don't have, that Mm -hmm. you'll get to learn from. So I think it's just, it's really inspiring work and I think it's really important work because it really can transform someone's life into them continuing to live. I mean, people say, these young people say, like, I don't know what I would have done. And we know the rates of, of violence and suicide, and it's, mm-hmm. it's high. So to be able to help young people and then to get behind them when they want to make changes to the bigger systems, I think is a really important part of the work as well. So listen to them. They've got a lot of wisdom and be thankful that you get to walk alongside them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all the great work you're doing and for taking the time to be on our show. Thank you. Thank you. If you have the chance, we'd love it if you could review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. On behalf of everyone at Search Institute, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.